Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Residential homes account for one-fifth of America's energy consumption, with the largest part of that consumption going towards home heating. In the U.S., more homes are heated with natural gas than any other fuel. And this is a fact that has drawn the attention of policymakers as momentum builds to reduce fossil fuel consumption. Recently, a number of cities have sought to curtail gas use by introducing policies to promote home electrification and, more controversially, through bans that prohibit gas hookups in new homes. While it's still too early to tell how effective and politically viable these efforts will be, what is clear is that the urgency to electrify everything will only intensify as more municipalities, states, and the federal government set ambitious decarbonization goals for the years to come. On today's podcast, we'll take a look at the drive to electrify home heating. We'll examine what motivates households to choose to electrify and how this understanding might be used to focus policies that drive rapid and equitable electrification of American homes. My guest is Lucas Davis, an economist at the University of California at Berkeley's Haas School of Business and a visiting scholar here at the Climate Center. His work focuses on energy and environmental markets. Lucas, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. We're in this era now uh, where there is a focus on the importance of electrifying everything. And much of the public conversation seems to have been around the electrification of transportation. But there's also been maybe a less high profile focus on eliminating fossil fuel use in the home. How important is reducing home fossil fuel use within the larger context of our efforts to cut greenhouse gas emissions? It's huge. So as you said, this is a major source of carbon dioxide emissions. So U.S. households burn 2.7 trillion cubic feet of natural gas each year for home heating. That's the carbon dioxide equivalent of having 40 million cars on the road. So this is a huge, huge sector for carbon dioxide emissions. So why is electrification of home heating specifically so important? Well, I think what I want to go back, what I want to start with is why first. So why are we talking about electrification and transportation? Why are we talking about electrification of buildings? For me, really, the starting point for this is cheap, renewable electricity. So over the last decade, grid-scale wind and solar have both fallen in cost precipitously. Since 2009, the levelized cost of wind is down 71%. Levelized cost of grid-scale solar is down 90%. That is what is precipitating these discussions because those cheap renewables create an opportunity not only to decarbonize the electricity sector, but then it leads us to look around and say, well, wait a second. What else could we do with electricity? What other, what other source, major sources of CO2 emissions could we potentially address with, with electricity? So electric home heating isn't as unusual as it once was. You know, I grew up in Ohio. We had natural gas heat. And a couple times a year, I'd go down to my grandmother's house in Nashville, Tennessee. And I remember as a kid noticing, you know, these heating units in the wall where you could flip the switch and then get a blast of heat in the face. It was kind of fun, but it was also very unusual. So, so this is kind of changing. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, I didn't realize, frankly, the degree to which it has changed over the last several decades until I started looking at this. Uh, but U.S. households 
really didn't heat with electricity 70 years ago. And and, and it kind of, it, let, let me give you just a little bit of his, history on this. If you go back to 1950, only 1% of US homes were heated with electricity. That increased to 8% by 1970, 26% by 1990, 35% by 2010, and just about 40% of households today are heat their homes primarily with electricity. That was frankly a much larger increase in electrification than I than I was aware of. And there actually has not been a lot of work by, done by economists or other researchers documenting or trying to understand that, that really pretty striking pattern. It is a very much a regional story. So, so the, uh, in, in part of this research, one of the things you do is you, you make maps. And it very much is a regional story where the southeastern United States has really embraced electricity. The climate in the southeast is really conducive to electric heating because most parts of the southeast, you don't need huge amounts of heat each year. Uh, so Texas is 60% electricity. Homes in Florida, 90% of them are heated with electricity. And so I just think understanding this historical trend and understanding this, this variation across states in how we heat our homes is, is really important as we move forward to think about constructing policies to increase electrification. Well, you know, so obviously there has been a switch, as you said, from 1% to about 40% of this country heating uh, with electricity. But the idea here now is that we have to get the other 60%. So you've investigated, again, what motivates people to switch to electric heating of their own accord. And you, you looked at a number of variables. What did you find? So the first thing I did, even before I collected any data, is I sat down with a yellow pad and I wrote down a list of hypotheses, right? Scientific methods. So first you set first you first you write down some hypotheses, and then you take it. You know, I'm an economist. I work I work with data, so I don't I don't run and I don't do an experiment in a lab, but I do take it to the data. And so I wrote down five hypotheses, and and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm an economist, so two of them that that loomed very large in my mind as I was sitting there with the yellow pad were prices and income. For economists, those are two of the major drivers of how we how we make choices. So those were definitely going to be on my list. I also wanted to think about geography and climate, which we can we could talk about. Um, okay, so I took then I took those hypotheses to the data and actually compiled data describing these seventy years of household heating choices, and began to began to be, began to tease through the data to try to understand well which of these different hypotheses holds. And what I found is that by far the most important factor that determines these choices is prices, energy prices. And, and if I had to pick one, it's electricity prices. I'm finding that, you know, and I guess in retrospect, we've got to think this is a major driver of choices, but I was struck just to the degree to which this drives behavior in the data. States with cheap electricity, you see a lot of electric heat. States with expensive electricity, you don't see it. And Energy prices as a whole, I find, can explain about two-thirds of this increase in electrification since 1950. So you really, in my experience, you don't normally go to the data and find that a single factor is so important. But in this case, I'm finding energy prices alone explain about two-thirds of the increase in electrification. Well, well, tying in with that, you also mentioned geography, right? So if you're in a part of the country where it's relatively warmer and you don't expect to actually have to use as much electricity to heat your home, then, you know, I guess the, the price differential of the energy that you're using would make less difference as well, right? Absolutely. If you just need a little bit of heat, 
Uh, say you live in Florida and you're only going to run a, run a heater two months of the year, electric heating system works great. Sure, it's expensive per, per BTU of heat, but it's cheap for the capital cost. The, the initial investment is low, and so that makes, that makes a lot of sense. But interestingly, so one of the other hypotheses I wrote down on my yellow pad was climate change. So I said, well, another thing that's gone on over the last 70 years is that the entire United States is warmer. Everyone, no matter where you live in the U.S., you need less heating than you did in 1950. I find that that does explain some of the increase in electrification over this period, but only about 4%. So whereas prices are like two-thirds, that climate change can only explain it about 4%. So that really, I think, is not, is not the, big, the big factor explaining this pattern over the last 70 years. Now, it's interesting. You live in Berkeley, uh, which was the first city to ban natural gas hookups in new home construction. That began in January of 2020. And it's interesting because it seems that Berkeley's solution puts climate concerns foremost ahead of economic considerations or motivations. And this is in a state that has one of the highest electricity costs in the country. How has the ban gone over? You're exactly right that Berkeley is ground zero for this. This is this was the first city in the United States to ban natural gas on, on new buildings. And it started in Berkeley, but it spread like wildfire. And now there's now 43 cities in California that have adopted similar bans on natural gas in new buildings. Moreover, policymakers in cities all over the U.S. are talking about it. This is, I, I actually, it's it's something that can be done. It's It's one of the policy levers that local policymakers have We've gone from really nobody talking about this. In January 1st, 2020, when Berkeley did this, this was this blew people's minds. Like this was not something people were talking about prior to this. Now cities all over the U.S. are talking about it. Well, it caught a lot of people off off guard, right? I mean, I guess it cost the gas industry off guard. And then we've seen some bans on the bans. For example, in Arizona, Oklahoma, they've actually passed state rules that say, look, municipalities, you can't do this. Yes, ab absolutely. That's the the other end of the spectrum. As you say, there are these states that are, they were saying, wait a second, exactly, exactly as you described. You can't, you know, cities, you don't have this right to ban natural gas. So th there really are two perspectives out there right now. There's the proponents of electrification who say, we have to do this if we're going to meet the climate goals we're trying to meet. And then you have cr critics who are saying, wait a second. A natural gas ban is going to be very expensive. This is going to cost consumers a lot of money. And moreover, it, it's probably going to be regressive. So it's going to hurt lower income households more. What I wanted to do in my research is to, is to try to... So this is getting discussed a lot in policy circles, but there's not much economic research on this. So I really wanted to try to bridge those two views and go to the data and try to say, well, how costly is a ban on, on natural gas uh, for households? How, how, much, how much does this cost a typical household? What did you find? I mean, how much does it does electrification you know cost the, the typical homeowner? The answer is that it really depends where in the United States you're talking about. So what I find is that in in states like Florida, where overwhelmingly households are already choosing electricity, the economic cost of banning natural gas is low. So it's less than a hundred dollars per household on average per year. In contrast, as you move northward to, uh, to colder and colder states, the cost of the ban increases. It's about $300 on average for a household in Texas. It's about $900 on average for a household in California. 
1100 in Pennsylvania and over $1,500 in the, in the coldest states like upper, upper New England. So let, let's let's uh, break this down a little bit here. So when we're looking at these costs, we have kind of two buckets or two categories of homes that I think are probably uh, important to to highlight and what you highlight in your research. And that is new homes that are going to be built and retrofitting of existing homes that may already be heated with oil heat or with natural gas heat. Can you talk about the different challenges and costs that are inherent in looking again at a new build versus retrofitting a, an existing house? Which, by the way, when we look at to you know to the middle of the century, when you know we hope to be carbon neutral, most of the houses that will exist at that point are already here today. A great point, and the numbers I described a minute ago are those are numbers for new builds. So that's really a lower bound. On, on the cost for all households. So a retro, retrofits are very are expensive. It's gonna be more expensive than that in all cases for all states. Why is it more expensive? Well, the capital costs of, of retrofits are more expensive than new builds. It just costs a lot more to go back in there and change and retrofit a system with an electric system. Uh, but also the operating costs are higher. So a lot of these older homes, not only are they heated with fossil fuels, but they also tend to be energy inefficient. They tend to be, they, they tend to not have great wall and roof insulation. Maybe they don't have upgraded windows, et cetera, et cetera. When you have a, a home that's not very energy efficient, moving to electricity is more expensive because you need to use a lot of kilowatt hours of electricity and it, and, and it becomes really cost prohibitive in a northern state say to switch to switch to electricity that's why retrofits is a big challenge and i i would i would describe my results as saying there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in relatively warmer parts of the country. There's a lot of households that we probably could convince to, to switch to electricity with a pretty modest subsidy for example but there's also large parts of the of the country, mostly the northern U.S., where it's a pretty big lift, where it's going to take a it would take a pretty significant subsidy uh, to get them to switch to electricity. I also want to point out here. I think when we're talking about switching to electric heating, we're actually talking about people putting what are called air source heat pumps in their homes. I don't think we're talking about the electric resistance heating, heating which, which my grandmother had in her house, which I understand is, is pretty inefficient and probably would make the costs costs higher. My understanding is that these heat pumps, though, they may have limited uh, ability to actually heat a home when you're in a place that's really, really cold. Moving forward, most electric heating is going to be heat pumps. And, it, and exactly as you say, it's because they're more efficient. What traditional resistance heating does is it converts electricity into heat, just like your toaster does, for example. A uh, heat pump is a completely different technology, and I and I think I don't really love the word heat pump, but what it, what a heat pump really is is running a, a an air conditioner backwards, and you're not converting electricity into heat; you're using electricity to move heat between the inside shell of the house and outside the house. So, how does an air conditioner work? You're moving heat from inside the house, outside the house. Well, a heat pump allows you to run that in, in reverse and bring heat from outside inside the house. And it actually takes less kilowatt hours of electricity to move heat than it does to produce heat. And so heat pumps under warm conditions can be three times more efficient than resistance heating. The challenge is that as it gets colder, imagine when you're trying to bring heat in on a very cold day, 
heat pumps become less efficient. They actually become much closer to resistance heating. And in some case, in many cases, in colder climates, what we have to do is build a backup heating system. So where you have a heat pump when it's for when it's relatively warm, but then you maybe need some other kind of a system, be it electric resistance heating or maybe a natural natural gas furnace to deal with very cold days. In practice, what those limitations have meant is that heat pumps are widespread in the southeastern United States, but pretty seldom used outside the southeast. So you've pointed out uh, in your research that Right now, uh, it, obviously, it's more expensive for someone to completely replace their heating system. You've got gas under an emergency situation in the winter. Your gas furnace dies, and you've got to replace it. What are you going to do? The easiest choice is to put another gas furnace in. But that really kind of works counter to what we need to accomplish here, right? Which is to switch over to electric heating. How do we create an environment through policy measures? economic measures, whatever they may be, to make switching to electric heat a default, no matter what your situation is, whether you have time to sit around and think about it and run the economics in your own home, or you have to do it on, a, on, a, on the fly to make sure your house is still warm in the winter and its coldest days. There is such inertia in these choices. Uh, it's not only with natural gas. I actually, a friend of mine has recently replaced his heating oil system with a, with a new heating oil system. Why? Because it went out in the middle of winter and he needed to get some heat into his home immediately. And there wasn't time to, 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 to retrofit. He didn't have a chance to go around and do research to, to move to natural gas, let alone to electricity. So I think I, I, what I would like to see is actually a different entry point. I'm excited about policies that would target not that heating replacement decision, but this central air conditioning replacement decision. So imagine this, it's the summertime, your central air conditioner goes out, call up an HVAC repairman, they come, but at that, at that point, they say, wait a second, you know, I've got this here, I've got this central air system, we can go with that. Or for a pretty modest incremental additional cost, we can go ahead and install a heat pump. And what this will allow you to do is to phase out the use, the, the, whatever you're currently using for, using for heating and use the heat pump for heating. I like that. Not only is I think there there people there's there's a little less urgency often in those summertime decisions, although I understand homes can get can get very hot, but that is that's actually a better chance, a better opportunity when you're going. You're already going to be spending money to install a central AC. The incremental cost at that point that's a pretty good opportunity to try to turn over that house and electrify it. In your report uh, on electrification, you, you come to a conclusion, and this is kind of going back to our our discussion a little bit earlier of the economics of switching. But you, you end with a very interesting quote, and I just want to read it briefly. Uh, it says, nationally, it may be a lot easier than generally believed to encourage electrification, as income seems to play little role in the decision, okay? I, I want to bring up a couple points uh, on that. One is that, so far, where we've seen these bans on natural gas hookups, those have been relatively well-to-do communities, Berkeley, California, Brookline, Massachusetts. And also, as you point out in your research, low-income households tend to more often live in multi-unit buildings that themselves are more likely to be electrified. So the question is, 
can we be sure that income has such a small impact in what is very often, at least to this point, an economic decision for, for a household? Yeah, let's, so a couple of reactions. Um, the first is that, as you described correctly, in the research, I find that income does not have a big impact on, on these choices. That is that high-income households make this trade-off between electricity and natural gas, much the same way that low-income households make that trade-off. That wasn't obvious to me. In fact, when I was hypothesizing what was going to happen, I, I thought there was going to be potentially room for a, a real income effect here where, say, perhaps high-income households might, might prefer electricity uh, because it's cleaner and, and uh, there's less on-site emissions. Really don't see that. Looks like income doesn't matter much for these choices. But I'm so glad you brought up multi-unit homes. I think multi-unit homes are a big opportunity here. What I find in my analysis is that multi-unit homes, and in particular, rental properties, are more, much more likely to be already heated with electricity. Now, why is that happening? I think it actually goes back to what economists have described as the landlord-tenant problem. Now, this is described as a problem in energy efficiency context. And in what sense is it a problem? Landlords tend to not spend a lot of money up front on capital investments that lead to savings over time, particularly when their tenants pay the energy bill. So this landlord-tenant problem has led to an underinvestment in multi-unit buildings in terms of energy efficiency investments. This exact same uh, incentive leads to more electric heating in landlord-owned properties. And that's an opportunity. Not only are, are these multi-unit homes already greener, more likely to be electrified, but it also means that this is a sector that I think that with a bit of a policy push could quite easily move even more in the direction of electrification. Too often when we design programs, we think about kind of, uh, we think about owner-occupied properties. I think this is kind of a forgotten sector. There's not enough attention in whether we're talking about utility design programs or national policymaking. We know that a third of Americans live in rental homes. This is a large opportunity for electrification. And I'd like to see much more policy focus on this sector. Is the grid itself ready to handle the potential load that would come from electrification of home heating systems across the country? And I, I think there are probably two, two kind of sub-questions to this. One is, is the grid low carbon enough to actually provide a climate benefit? And number two, is it robust enough to economically provide low-cost electricity, again, as you would get more of the country uh, relying on electricity for pretty much everything in the home? The U.S. grid is getting greener fast. So this is true not only in states like California that are kind of out ahead of this, and, and we you know, here in California, we're uh, speeding towards 50% renewables. But when you look at just emissions from the electric grid, it's down dramatically, even since 2010. So the, the U.S. grid is much, much cleaner than it was even a short time ago. Sure, there's still a lot of regional variation. Electricity is dirtier in the Midwest today than it is in California, for example, but everywhere it's getting greener. The other thing on that is that even if there's not a huge carbon benefit in 2021 from electrification, proponents of electrification are going to say, yeah, but we are 
setting in place capital infrastructure today that's going to affect how people heat their homes in 2030, 2040 and beyond. So thinking about where we're going with the electric sectors, maybe even more important than where it is, it is today. Is the grid robust enough? Is it, that's, that's a completely separate and important line of study. There's certainly been spectacular recent failures. The tragic events in Texas in, in February underscore the importance of, of designing electric grids and, and management of grids and setting up incentives in a way to make sure that we can keep, keep the lights on. This is going to continue to be a, a, a challenge that's going to, it's going to take kind of all hands on deck approaches that combine demand response and storage and, and more supply reliability, et cetera. But I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm optimistic that actually we can incorporate much more, much larger shares of renewables into the grid and can, can continue to keep rates reasonable and to keep the lights on. Uh, I want to refer to some other uh, research that you've, you've uh, done recently. And, and you've looked at the risk that poorer households could foot the bill for legacy gas infrastructure should large parts of the population electrify their households. Can you talk about this risk and, and how it might be addressed? So I think as, as a pertinent example, think about new homes. Think about we're going somewhere and we're building a brand new housing development. I think a really interesting question is, should we extend the natural gas system, that new housing development? Uh, I think it's a really interesting question because if we think that we need to electrify in the next decade or two, it may not make sense in terms of the, all, that large capital investment to roll out, roll out the natural gas infrastructure. So that's, I think that that question about new, about what we do in terms of new, new natural gas infrastructure is really interesting. Related, we're seeing uh, a growing patchwork of households and businesses defect from the natural gas system. So here, here in Berkeley, for example, there are homes that are going all electric, right? The electrify everything mo movement. One of my neighbors is replacing his natural gas um, furnace with, a, with an electric heat pump. And he's, all, he's get, going electric hot water. He's going he's gonna to continue to pay a PG&E bill, but only on the electricity side. Why that's a challenge is that there is that in natural gas rates, there are a huge legacy costs. So it costs the, the natural gas um, system, in, uh, billions and billions of dollars have been incurred to run the natural, natural gas lines all over the United States. And those costs are still being borne by, by ratepayers. So when my neighbor leaves that system, those fixed costs don't go away. You still got this exact same natural gas line running down, running down my street. And the question is who's gonna pay? And the, and the answer is all the customers that are left. And at this point, this is just beginning to happen. We're just seeing little patches of people leave the natural gas system. But in a kind of a forward-looking exercise with University of Michigan economist Katie Hausman, we thought about what could this look like over the next decade or two as you see widespread numbers or large-scale large number of people leaving the natural gas system. And it raises real equity concerns because as we've seen in a previous cycle of this with rooftop solar and the electricity grid, it's likely that it's going to tend to be higher income households who are able to electrify. And I'm concerned that that could leave lower, lower income households left holding the bag for these legacy costs. So Lucas, before we finish up here, is there anything, any highlights from your research that you'd, you'd like to talk about that, that I haven't asked you about yet? I think one of the important takeaways from the research is that energy prices matter. 
And this is a familiar theme for energy economists. Actually, energy, we've been talking about energy prices for a really long time. But I think this home heating example is a, just a really rich illustrative example of how, you know, when we're setting rates for how, how do we set electricity prices? How do we set natural gas prices? Do we price externalities? A lot of times that, that, that conversation is very abstract and it's hard to think, well, how does this really matter? You know, how does it really matter? This example of home heating shows how this matters. If rates are set in such a way that they don't reflect social marginal cost, that leads to wrong choices. You have too many people using electric heat or not enough people using electric heat. So I, I guess I just think this is a, this just underscores, you know, economists are a broken record on this, but it underscores the importance of making sure that energy is priced efficiently. Lucas, thanks very much for talking. Thank you so much. This was a treat. Today's guest has been Lucas Davis, an economist at the University of California at Berkeley. Lucas did recently publish a working paper, which I neglected to give a name to in this podcast. That working paper is titled, What Matters for Electrification? Evidence from 70 Years of U.S. Home Heating Choices. Visit the Climate Center's website for more episodes of Energy Policy Now, as well as the latest energy policy research and blog posts from the Center. To keep up with the latest from the Center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.